So glad you guys could all be here. Let's, uh, let's start off with a question. What's, maybe don't say it out loud, just think it in your head. What's the most amount of money you've ever spent on something to eat or something to drink? Let that go through your mind for a second. Back in the year 2000, a bottle of 1992 Screaming Eagle Cabernet sold at an auction for $500,000. Someone bought a half a million dollar bottle of wine. And uh, you guys might have seen a lot of wine around here. You can't go into a deli or a grocery store or a gas station in this town without a giant display of wine. That's why I don't let my kids go inside any stores, right? You knock over one of those, you're in big trouble. <laughs> let me ask a question. Some of you might be familiar with this. It might be a new thought for others. What makes wine so expensive? How come one bottle can go for 5000 and another one is $20? Maybe that's something that you're familiar with. There's a variety of factors that go into making, uh, determining the value of wine, and it usually comes down to its age and its scarcity. You guys are probably familiar with supply and demand. Uh, most of the elite vineyards in France are only about five or six acres. In other words, even in a really good year, the most they can produce is about ten to 15,000 bottles. So in a really good year, you can understand how collectors around the world would want to scoop those up fast. But probably the biggest factor in determining the taste and the value of wine is the quality of the grapes. And that's something that's largely out of control of the growers. It's what led Martin Luther, the Lutheran monk, to say, men make beer, but God makes wine. Right? Like there's things out of our control that make those grapes sweet and flavorful. So I was kind of interested in learning a little bit more about this. Uh, so I was reading today about what are the factors that make grapes turn out excellent in one year, you know, over another year, because obviously the growers are going for perfect grapes every year. And so I'll, I'll list off the three things that I came across, and then because it's talking about wine, it's like really snobby, so then I'll put it through a translator and tell you what I think they're saying. So uh, this one helpful article said, that uh, grapes turn out well in a good growing year because of early rapid flowering, assuring homogeneous ripening, right? And I think that means the grapes grow mature and evenly, right? Like clouds don't make half of the field uh, grow slower than the other. All the grapes grow at the same rate and they mature at the same time. That's one factor. Another factor, hydric stress determines tannic content. I literally got out a dictionary and looked up each of those words individually. It means they watered the plants the right amount, right? They gave the right amount of water for the right flavor to be unlocked in the grapes. The third one was this, cessation of vegetative growth of the vine before color change. Again, I looked up every single word. It means the grapes were picked at just the right time, okay? These are the things that make grapes turn out extremely flavorful in some years, but not others. So for the next uh, month or so, our sermon series is going to focus in on a, a concept that's brought up in the book of Galatians, specifically Galatians 5, 22 to 25. It's one of the Bible's most interesting and also overlooked promises. Because what Paul is telling us in Galatians 5, 22 to 25, is that when a Christ follower 
is living rightly. When a Christ follower, through God's grace, is doing things the right way, they're going to experience an increase in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are there any of those things that you wouldn't want more of in your life? Those are all good things. Those are all things that we want more of. And the author of this passage nicknames those things the fruit of God's Spirit in your life. In other words, when we're living for God the right way, it's intended that we have more of these things uh, showing up in our lives year by year. So the Bible's telling us that you can be like wine, right? You can get better with age. Isn't that good news? Not many things that we read or watch on TV that tell us we can get better with age. The Bible is telling us if we're doing this the right way, we can have more of these things in an increasing measure in our life year by year. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to study different passages in the Bible that explain how with God's help, we can have more of these things in our lives. Just like a great vintage, a great year of wine, uh, we're going to learn how 2021 can have you experiencing more of these things. Like this isn't prosperity. I'm not saying that all your relationships will be fixed. I'm not saying that this will be a great year for you financially. Nobody can promise you those things because the Bible doesn't promise those things. But here in Galatians 5, it does promise us that God can bring more of these virtues into our life if we're living by the right power. So let's spend a little bit of time this afternoon talking about that. I'm going to ask you guys a couple of rhetorical questions. Have you ever heard of somebody making a resolution or a goal to become intentionally more selfish or angry? Nobody does that. Have you ever heard a comedian joke or complain about another person that's too joyful or too resilient? No, nobody ever looks down at those qualities. Have you ever had a friend or a coworker lament that their spouse was wise and patient and happy and it was driving them crazy? No, nobody would ever do those things. They're things that we all want. They're things that we all need. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. It's a letter written by Paul almost all the way towards the back of your Bible. And uh, there's also an outline that you got in your bulletin when you came in. We're just going to move through this in just three quick parts. And part number one, I want us to identify what it is that these verses are specifically promising for us, as well as the context that they're given to us in. It's always important to understand the context of something we're studying in the Bible. Section number two, um, this isn't easy. And today's text also points out the main obstacles that we're going to face. I think it's imperative that we talk about those three things. And then finally, we don't always make progress in these goals because we don't always identify and use the right power. And that's probably one of the main things that this text talks about. So in section three, we're going to focus on how God empowers us to make progress in these pursuits uh, in uh, supernatural ways. So let's get started and let's just very quickly talk about the context or kind of the form of the book of Galatians. A couple things we just need to know before jumping in a little bit more deeply. First of all, Galatians was a letter written by this church planter. Before there were pastors, there were these apostles that traveled around uh, the, uh, the Eastern world and they started churches and Paul was the great church planter. And in this letter, which he sent back at a later date to the people and uh, the region of this church, one of the churches that he founded, 
he's addressing a specific criticism that had kind of been brought up and leveled against him since he had uh, traveled to other places. Uh, we get a taste of this here in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Paul writes this. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. In other words, people criticized Paul and the things that he taught. They are turning away from these things that he taught. And so now in this letter, he's addressing uh, where things have gone wrong. In the next couple of chapters, Paul is addressing the criticism and he's explaining that the gospel doesn't contradict the Old Testament. I'm sure you guys have noticed sometimes in listening to sermons or uh, reading through the Bible, the Old Testament is it's filled with these laws and these rules and these expectations. And so the criticism that's being leveled against Paul here is that he's leading you away from what the Bible has taught us. He's leading you away from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full with these rules and laws that a good follower of God is supposed to follow. And here this guy is talking about something completely new. And so Paul, here in Galatians, is explaining that the gospel, good news that Jesus Christ died for us on the cross and gives us the power of his Holy Spirit, it's, it's not contradicting the Old Testament. It's a beautiful continuation of what God has always been asking us to do. And he sums this up very beautifully in Galatians 2.20 when he says this, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And uh, as we just kind of conclude section one here, later on in chapter five, the section that we're really focusing on this afternoon is uh, where Paul is explaining that when you live by this new power, when you are living with the newness that's available to us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Spirit is actually in us. It's a new force. It's a new influence. And as we live by that power, we can expect an increase in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and all those things that I need a lot more of. So, you've probably heard sermons like this before. And you might have even gotten frustrated by that. And I'd like to explain an illustration or two why I think we sometimes get a little bit off track when we try to experience this promise coming true in our life. I think a lot of times when we hear this talked about or we read it on our own, it makes it seem like we're being told that we're going to suddenly have new access to something wonderful. It sounds like as soon as we start following Christ... It's going to be easy to be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and self-controlled and who wouldn't want that? And then a week or two goes by of the new year or a month or two and we're frustrated because we don't feel like we have that great access. The first month that I lived in Big Sky, uh, someone, a generous person from the church, uh, made uh, his family's, uh, I guess, winter home available for me to stay in and it was up on the mountain, uh, up past the access gate on Jack Creek Road. I don't know if you guys have ever been privileged enough to go past there, but you get to the end of the resort and there's this big gate. And my kids were worried, right? Like we got to the end of the road. 
And you just type in this code, and it's just like a James Bond movie. And all of a sudden, this gate goes up. It's amazing. And you drive through, and suddenly you, I'm not kidding you, you'll see some of the most beautiful views in all of our country. It's incredible, right? All of a sudden, if you have that code, you have new access to beautiful things. I think we're frustrated with the promises of Galatians 5 because we think we've got this access code, and all of a sudden, God is going to flood these virtues into our life, and it's going to be great. And that's not what happens. And so we kind of figure that the promise must not be true. But I have another illustration that I think helps us understand a little bit more about what Galatians 5 is telling us. And uh, that comes through the picture of a fruit or of a seed. Now imagine for a second somebody gave you an apple or an orange. You could eat it right there on the spot and what would be left over out of that one piece of fruit? There'd be about a dozen seeds, right? And if you took the time to plant those seeds... It would take time, and it would take the right conditions. It would take a little bit of cultivation. And now all of a sudden, you'd have a dozen apple trees, right? Or if you put it in an acorn, you'd have a beautiful oak tree. And out of that oak tree, you'd have 100 acorns to plant 100 more oak trees. Or if you planted that, uh, those apple seeds or those orange seeds, you'd have 100 new plants, and you'd get 800 plants out of those, right? The, the analogy is that you will get more fruit in your life not because you have instant access, but if you take the time and energy to cultivate those seeds, right? So what I think Galatians 5 is telling us is that if we have the discipline as God's followers through his power to plant the seeds of love and patience and goodness and faithfulness, and we cultivate those things, over time we'll be overwhelmed with the beauty of that fruit in our life, right? But it's not just instant access, It's the discipline to cultivate those seeds over time, and that's something that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. All right, the Bible rarely tells us to do something without giving us advice on the obstacles that we're going to face and how difficult it's going to be to accomplish those things. And so there's at least three things that it tells us here about how this pursuit of trying to experience more of these virtues is going to be difficult. First one is this. It's kind of... One of those moments in the Bible where I read it and I think the Bible must be real because that's true about me. And nobody could know that that's true about me except with supernatural knowledge, right? And so my whole life I felt like there's this inner impulse inside of me to look to my own self-interest, to do what's generally best for me in that moment. And uh, Paul clearly has knowledge from God, because listen to what Paul explains. He calls it the flesh. And whenever you're reading through Galatians and you come across that term, the flesh, that's a translation, of course, right? You don't always have the perfect word in one language that represents the the idea in the original language. I think a great word to translate when Paul says the lust of the flesh is just our inner impulses. When you read the flesh in Galatians, just think of your, your inner impulses. Listen to what it says. It's not great news. Galatians 5.16, it says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the inner impulses. And then starting in verse 19, he gives us a list of what those inner impulses look like as they impact our thinking and our actions. 
And it says the acts of the flesh or those inner impulses are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom. In other words, this is just an incredibly diagnostic section of scripture. It affirms to me that I'm not the only one that struggles with those wrong, self-defeating, harmful inner impulses. The Bible is saying, don't look at me that way because you have those too. From time to time, we all have those wrongful inner impulses. We all have them. Uh, You've probably heard speakers use this illustration before. This kid goes to his grandpa's house and his grandpa has two dogs and he's like, Grandpa, which one is the stronger one? And the wise grandpa says, the one that you feed more, right? So the Bible's telling us that we have these two, a Christian has these two natures inside of us. We have those, that flesh nature, that pull towards selfish inner impulses that we'd rather not other people know about, but we all have them. It says we also have this pull towards the Spirit. The Spirit of God wants to plant the seeds of virtue in our life that will be fruitful over time, right? These are the two impulses that we all have. And this shouldn't seem surprising to us because we all have dueling impulses, do we not? There's some days that I wake up and I say, I want to be a good athlete. So I go for a Nordic ski, or I go to the gym and lift weights, or I go for a run. And then there's other days I sit down and I say, I want to eat this carton of ice cream before the third quarter of this basketball game. Right? (laughs) Sometimes I make progress in that first goal. Sometimes I prove that I can do the second. And... As we exercise those impulses, it determines how how strong we're going to be the next time we find ourselves at those crossroads. That's what Galatians is all about. It's saying we have this sinful nature, this pull towards wrongful, harmful, selfish impulses. We're saying as a follower of Christ, we also have the potential to follow this power to this great uh, virtue fruitfulness in our lives. Well, what's another obstacle other than just this wrongful pull that we have? The whole context of this thing that Paul is addressing is showing that sometimes we're confused about the role that effort plays in experiencing God's blessing, right? Sometimes we're just confused about the role that our work and our effort plays in experiencing God's blessings in our life. Uh, The answer is, We can't do anything to earn our salvation. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. As a Christian, the good news is that our salvation comes through faith in what Jesus Christ did for us in his death and resurrection. God's favor comes in the fact that we're adopted into his family and Jesus Christ has taken our place in judgment. So our effort and our actions don't play a role in any of that stuff. But that's not what Galatians 5 is talking about. Galatians 5 is talking about something different. It's, playing, it's talking about the role that our will and our effort plays in cultivating the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in our life. But even explaining that as concisely as I can, it's, it's muddy, it's confusing, and our mind goes back and forth among those different 
kind of categories. Uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, the third obstacle that we have in really making great progress in this list of things that we all want more of uh, is this. Even if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, even if you are a mature, church-going, wonderful person, you're never fully invulnerable to pride and uh, that pull from our inner nature. This is really interesting. Listen to what it says. At the end of this idea that Paul is explaining, he's talking about the good things that will happen when we live by the Holy Spirit. But he says this in verse 26. Uh, since, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. This is his ending. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. I've been a pastor for a long time. I can't think of a better summary of the terrible things that churchgoers do to each other than this sentence. Uh, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And I've seen really mature and wonderful people fall victim to the exact things that that list is talking about. In other words, um, if you've ever gone to college and you remember signing up for those 101 classes, right? I was an English major, so I took uh, American Literature 101, and that's like the easiest class you'll ever take. The final is like, is Ernest Hemingway an American writer, right? And you check yes. Uh, is um, Charles Dickens, an American writer. No. And then you walk out of there and you get an A and you think, hey man, I'm so, I know everything there is to know about American literature. But then it's four years later, right? And you're a senior and you're taking 400 level classes. I had a class once, uh, senior year, on Walt Whitman's influence on transcendentalism. Any, anybody want to read my essays on that? Like, it gets so much more complicated. And even if you didn't go to college, maybe you're a carpenter, maybe you raised a family. Everybody here has examples of things that they started off not knowing a lot about, only to go on and become experts at. But even when you are experts, that it's kind of like that saying, it just now you know how much you don't know, right? So what the final challenge that we're given here in Galatians 5 is that even when you make, even if you spend the first 20 years of your walk with Christ making incredible progress against those things that are on that list of the acts and the impulses of the flesh, you will, you will never be totally invulnerable to conceit and jealousy of one another and the things that are on that second list. But uh, we're not here to be discouraged because Paul is telling us we can grow in these areas and uh, let's wrap up our time this afternoon focusing on how we can do that. I think the exclamation point or that the light, the light bulb moment or the really good news of uh, the, the, the scripture that we're studying today comes in Galatians 5.24 and it says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Again, remember, flesh is not talking about your body. It's talking about those sinful impulses. And it's saying those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified those impulses and the passions and the desires. Again, you might have heard a sermon like this before and become frustrated because a year later or six months later you think to yourself, I don't feel like sin has been killed in my life. I feel like I'm still tempted just as much as I've ever been. Let me think of another illustration that I think 
helps us process what uh, Galatians 5 is saying here. Think back to your elementary school days. Think to maybe being in third or fourth grade. Doesn't matter how wonderful of a school you went to, maybe a public school, maybe a private school. When you get out of that classroom and you're, you're on the playground, you are living by the law of the playground, right? And the law of the playground means that the biggest kid or the meanest girl, right? Like they are in charge. And teacher's not there to save you. And mommy's not there to save you. And you know you better do what that bully says for the sake of survival. Right? It's just how it is. Uh, I remember um, back when I was in fourth, third or fourth grade, I did the math on this. And it just so happened that it was my dad's 25th high school reunion. And uh, so we went to downstate Illinois. And uh, I don't know why it's... It, it, it was, we just went to this kind of public park uh, in downstate Illinois. It was actually a really boring day for me. I can never remember my dad being happier. He was just so happy to see all his old high school classmates. And if you think about it, this is the day before, the days before Facebook and social media. So like you would go, and some of you I'm sure remember this, you'd go 10 or 20 years not seeing or hearing from any of your old childhood friends. And then all of a sudden you'd get to see them and meet their spouses and see their kids and catch up on old times so I can understand how my, why my dad was so happy. Here's an illustration. If you're 45 years old and you're at your 25th high school year reunion and all of a sudden that bully from, from fourth grade comes up to you, grabs your arm, says, I'm going to make you eat a booger or something that like, you know, only, only like a third grader would do. Who, who would put up with that? Nobody. Because by the time you're at your 25th year old high school reunion, there's a new set of laws, right? Like you're not impressing people because you're the, the, the best kicker at kickball anymore or the strongest kid or the, the, the meanest, gossipiest kid. Like there's a new set of laws. Now you impress people based on how successful you are, uh, your spouse, your kids, all the, there's just a whole new set of laws. And so what I'm hoping to say here is that Galatians 5.24 isn't telling us that we'll never be tempted anymore as Christians. It's not even saying that there will no longer be that impulse towards those harmful things. What it's saying is that the authority of the flesh has been crucified by Christ. You're no longer subject to that third-grade bully. That's what sin is. That's what those inner impulses are. They're still around. They'll still pester you. But they've been crucified in Christ. They're no longer the authority over us. Just like you can look at that third grade bully when you're 45 and say, get lost. We're all grown up now. Those who are in Christ can respond to temptation and can respond to those harmful inner impulses by saying, get lost. You're not the authority over me anymore because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a new power that I yield to, right? I hope that illustration helps shine some light on it. The laws and the forces that we used to obey are still out there, but we don't have to answer to them because we've grown to discover a more mature and a greater and a more sophisticated power. Let's close with this final thought. There's one other insight that today's passage gives us on how we can experience God's power in our life. And it says it in verse 25. Uh, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, we can experience these things in our life 
if we choose these things in our life. I had a hilarious conversation uh, this week with a friend of mine. We were talking about how dangerous it is sometimes to drive on the roads around here in uh, southwestern Montana. And she said, you know, my husband has this game that he likes to play when we're out driving. He's got this great four-wheel drive truck. And sometimes he likes to see if he can get all the way to Wyoming without turning on the four-wheel drive. Right? He just wants to see how long and what treacherous areas he can get through in two-wheel drive. And I, I kind of laugh because I'm a guy and all guys do stupid things like that, right? Like we just, we, we do dumb things to just break up the monotony of the drive, just come up with uh, immature little games like that. But I, I also think it's a perfect illustration because in Galatians 5.25 it says you have to walk in step with the Spirit. Just because you have four-wheel drive on your truck doesn't mean your truck's going to stay on the road if you don't activate four-wheel drive. A Christian has access to the Holy Spirit's power in their life, but he or she has to activate it. You have to walk in step with it. You have to come. I love Mark's prayer today. When there's someone in your life that's unloving, you have to choose through God's power to be loving with whatever that means in that situation. There's people in your life that don't appreciate the good things that they have. You have to choose joy in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we live in a contentious society, you have to decide that you're going to choose to be a peaceful person, even if someone is hostile to you. We choose patience when there's frustrating circumstances around us, like our kids not going to school for nine months, right? Like All these things that we look at as tests are also opportunities for us to activate the Spirit in our life. So uh, I think we squeezed about everything we can out of Galatians 5, 16 to 26, but I want us to keep track of that promise, because that promise is that those beautiful attributes are things that you can experience more of in your life through the power of God's Spirit. So uh, every Sunday afternoon for the next month or so, we're going to pick one of those attributes And we're going to find a place in Scripture where we're taught a little bit more how the Holy Spirit can help us grow in those things. I hope that intrigues you, uh, and I hope that you believe in the power of God's promises to come true in your life if we're living and responding how God has asked us and empowered us to do.